Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will begin our reading at verse number 10. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. I think the King James says constrains us. Because we judge thus, that if one die for all, then all die. And we die for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to him through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Chapter 6, verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. My, lots of doctrine there. <laughs> Looking forward to it, Gary. Lots of doctrine. This time we're happy to welcome our brother Gary back up uh, and give us the message that the Lord has laid on his heart today. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Andy. Well, nice to be with you again, and it's been nice to have our glorious sister, my sister-in-law, with us uh, for this week. It's been sort of cold and snowy in Ontario, and so she's enjoyed Florida weather and enjoyed being here Wednesday and Sunday and meeting uh, you dear folk as well. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, She flies home uh, tomorrow, 
such as Hutter Week here and then heads back. There's still snow and ice up there. Hard to believe, but it still continues for a while. So let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as Don said, it is quite a, a passage. And I want to approach it from this perspective or this point of view as uh, thinking of it, the motivation for us in the Christian life. What motivates us? You know, people in the world talk about motivation. Athletes are motivated by uh, fame and perhaps fortune. They do things so that they get more money and more accolades, uh, and that's true in a lot of areas of life. Uh, when our kids are growing up, we often try to do things to motivate them, uh, whether it be an allowance or rewards or treats or whatever. Uh, we want to motivate them. Eventually, we tire of that and just give them a boot. But uh, we start with, uh, with trying to motivate them to, uh, to action and to do things, and so uh, in the Christian life, uh, sometimes we can become complacent and forget what really matters. And so this chapter, or this passage, really gives us some thoughts on what should motivate us. And I want to just think of perhaps uh, three things, and we'll look at various points under those three things, but one that our, our life really counts for eternity. Our life is of eternal consequence. Uh, secondly, the Lord has done so much for us. And as we read this chapter, we see some of that. And then thirdly, he's given us responsibility as well. There's a number of things in here that he wants us uh, to do. And so we'll just approach the chapter in that way. So when you think of the fact that our life matters for eternity, that's a very serious and solemn uh, thought. We're only here for a limited period of, of time. Uh, the Bible talks about 70 years, and uh, some like Ed live much uh, longer, but it is a limited time. Uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin said two things for sure, taxes and death, and so uh, it's inevitable. The Bible tells us uh, that. But in our time here, our life does touch uh, eternal matters, especially as Christians. Now, non-Christians will be judged, the book will be open, and they'll be judged by what they've done, so their life really matters for eternity as well. But ours, uh, if we're born again, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have this new life that's talked about in verse 17, then our life counts for eternity. And so Paul says one of the things that should really speak to us, should really uh, have a consequence in our life, is what he says at the end of verse 9, that we want to be well-pleasing to him. What motivates us in life is a Gave you uh, Boyd Nicholson's poem last week. What do I really desire in this life? Is it something for me or glory for thee? What is it that motivates us? And so Paul says, what should really be our focus, what should motivate us is that we want to be well-pleasing to him. More than anything else, that should be our, our goal in life. You know, I mentioned, for instance, uh, Cecil Rhodes, who said, apparently said that, you know, at the end of life, he said, I've acquired much in, in Africa of land and gold and diamonds, uh, but I'm not prepared for the future, therefore I have nothing. And so that's a sad way to end life. And it seems obvious, as we'll see in Scripture, that it is possible for believers to have a worthless life as well. And so we need to be motivated. And what's our motivation? Well, I want to please him. 
more than anything else to be pleasing to him. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 said that uh, whether I eat or drink, I want to do everything or we should do everything to the glory of God. That should be our motivation. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 that he, forgetting those things that are behind, he said, I press toward the mark of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. That should really motivate us, that our life does matter for eternity. I mentioned on Wednesday night, Luke 16, verse 9, that talks about our money being used here uh, and friends then welcoming us in eternal habitations or in heaven. And so we can use our money to touch eternity. But uh, Paul says to Timothy about not trusting in uncertain riches, for those who are wealthy not to trust in uncertain riches, but to lay up treasures in heaven. And so our life really does, does matter. So day by day, of course, life can be sort of, you know, humdrum, normal. None of us do any, probably any great exciting things very often. Uh, life is normal. But what motivates us in our life? Is it just getting through the day or is it the fact that I really do want to please him? You know, the Lord Jesus talked about uh, the accolade of being well done, thou good and faithful servant. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to hear at the end of, of life? So our, our life does matter. Now, it's interesting in Scripture, it never talks about uh, sort of, you know, a caste system or class or distinctions. Every believer is equal in the sense that the Lord knows where we're at. He knows our privileges, our limitations. He knows uh, everything about us. But in that, what motivates us? Is it the things of this world? Is it getting ahead? What is it? Is it the fact that I really want to please him more than anything else? I trust that 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 would be our motivation, that regardless of what happens, I just want to please him. Now, in the past two years, of course, all sorts of things have come out and, and people get caught up in all sorts of issues and express them, some of them graciously and some of them not so graciously. But each of us should ask, regardless of our opinion on what's going on in the world, what, what motivates me? Is it the fact I, I really want to please uh, him? And then he says that we're going to receive the things that were done in the body according to what you've done, whether good or bad. Now, the word bad there means worthless. It doesn't mean evil in the sense that you did something, something terrible. But it's talking about the fact that your life has either been profitable or been worthless. Now, he's talking about the Christian life. This is to Christians here. He's not talking about unbelievers living a worthless life. He's talking about Christians who live a worthless life. And so you can think of some examples perhaps in, in Scripture. You think of a man, uh, you know, who he, Paul could, could say he loved this present world, right? He loved this present world. He talks in, first, in Philippians 3 about those who love this, this world. And so that could be true of a Christian. Uh, live for this world and not for that world. And so there is going to be an accountability where we receive what is done in our body. And the Lord knows, uh, again, all about us. But uh, 
Paul emphasizes this in other places. In Philippians 2, he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if I'm saved, why do I have to work out my own salvation? Well, he's not talking about being saved from sin. He's talking about the reality of the Christian life. And the thought of fear and trembling is, I should fear lest I waste my life, lest it is worthless. I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling because uh, my, my Christian life is worth uh, something. He said to Timothy to preach the word, and he said, in so doing, you will save yourself and those who hear you. Again, he wasn't talking about Timothy being saved from sin. But the thought is saved from a worthless life. And that should motivate us. We want our life to count. And the Lord's going to look at our, our life and evaluate it. You know, in, second, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the work is assessed. And there it's talking about the local assembly, what we've done in our own local assembly. And the work is assessed, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And what is burned up and consumed is gone. And it talks about those who will be saved, yet is by fire. It is, their life has been wasted. They haven't invested. They have nothing to show uh, for it. And so we should think in those terms that, you know, I want my life to count for eternity. It's nice that we have, you know, privilege and blessings and material things here, but we can't take those into eternity. And so we need to recognize that what I do should and does matter for eternity. Peter, on the other hand, talks in Second Peter about an abundant entrance into an everlasting kingdom, everlasting habitation. And the context there is the character that we develop. And he says, if that's true of us, if we add to our faith virtue and virtue knowledge and so on, and he says we become Christ-like, he says we'll gain an abundant entrance into an everlasting kingdom. And so our life matters and it will be evaluated. But he talks in here about the judgment seat of Christ. And every believer is going to have his day, his moment, before the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers will stand before what the Bible calls the great white throne. Those will be cast into the lake of fire. The books will be opened. It will be determined that they've never placed their faith, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they'll be banished to a lost eternity, a godless eternity. But for believers, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the, the whole economy, we might say, of the judgment seat of Christ is different than the great white throne. If you took uh, something, produce or an apple pie to a fair, and you're going to be judged for what you've produced, you're not there in fear uh, that the judge is going to send you to prison because your apple pie tastes terrible, you left out the cinnamon or you didn't put enough sugar in. Uh, there's no fear. There's anticipation. There's a sense, well, I wonder if he'll pick my pie over somebody else's pie. And that's the thought in the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a matter of fear in the sense that we know there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But our lives will be evaluated. And it seems in the three passages where the judgment seat of Christ is talked about in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 3 and here, that there's three realms perhaps that are looked at. Like I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3, it's about the local assembly. Paul said, you know, I laid a foundation there. Let everybody take heed how they build upon it, what material you pour into it. And in verse 17, 
God talks about how precious the local church is, the local assembly is to him. And so a lot of Christians don't realize that that's going to be evaluated. What have I given? What have I put into my local assembly? Am I building with gold, silver, and precious stones, or is it wood, hay, and stubble? And then in, uh, in Romans uh, chapter uh, 14, the thought there is, is our self, our conduct, what we've done, how we've responded is going to be evaluated. And then here it's our works that are evaluated. And so the Lord is going to look at our, our life and we are going to stand there and give an account to him for the life we've lived, our Christian life. And he's going to dispense rewards. Now, the wonderful thing is that, you know, John 15 reminds us that without me, you can do nothing. And it's only by being attached to him as the vine that we can produce any fruit in our life. And so he does it, but then he'll reward us as if we'd done something. That's the wonder of it all. As if you had produced or performed. He, he's done it through you, but he'll reward you as if you have done it. And so he's going to look at our motives as well. Why did we do what we do? Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4 tells us we're not to judge the motives of one another because we don't know what those motives are. But the Lord's going to judge in that day our motives as well. And so our life does matter for eternity. And if nothing else should motivate us, that should motivate us. That it matters. How we live really does, does matter, not just for time, but for eternity. And so each of us one day will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll be responsible for the privileges that he has given to us, for the gift that he's given to us, for the resources that we've been given. We will answer someday and he'll dispense rewards. And so that's, that should be motivation enough. But he, this passage also talks about what Christ has done for us. And if, if it isn't enough that I'm motivated by the, the thought that my life matters for eternity, when I think of what he's done for me, that should motivate me even more. Out of his love for us, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So we read in here, for instance, in verse 15, and we thought of this at the first meeting this morning, he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful he died for all. It was mentioned this morning that he became the propitiation, not for only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The value of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is immense. It's available for all. Of course, salvation is a gift. It must be received in order to be applied to our life. Perhaps an illustration is you might have a gift under a Christmas tree with your name on it, but if you don't take it, it still sits there. It never becomes yours. You've got to reach out and take it and open it and make it yours. So this gift is offered. It's been paid for. He paid for for all. We, we talk in, in terms of unlimited atonement as opposed to limited atonement. He didn't just die for some. He died uh, for all. I think that's clear through Scripture. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins 
of the world. It's only applied to those who believe. Now, interestingly enough, there is a, we just read a book this week about progressive Christianity. And uh, men like uh, Brian McLaren, I think he lives somewhere here in Florida, Rob Bell out of Michigan, I think is where Rob Bell is. These men led a movement that have moved away from what we would say the scripture talks about and the the value of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, Brian McLaren's grandparents were assembly missionaries in Angola, and so he's moved a long way uh, from what they taught and and did uh, a couple generations ago. But their view is that uh, Christ didn't die for our sins. He died because the, the Jews put him to death. It wasn't God demanding a sacrifice. It was rather he gave us an example of a life well lived and then he was put to death because of of that. But it takes away the vicarious sufferings of Christ, the death of Christ for for us as sinners. It takes away the fact that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Or as verse 21 says here, he was made sin uh, for us. But that apparently that type of uh, doctrinal understanding is, is spreading. Uh, in what's called the emergent church or progressive Christianity. So if you see those terms, you can be aware of where those things are going. But we can be so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. He loved me and gave himself for me. What would you do if somebody gave their life for you? How would you respond to the rest of their family? What would your thought be? Well, he loved you and gave himself for you. That should be tremendous motivation uh, for me to, uh, to serve him. Uh, thinking of verse 21, this is a tremendous verse doctrinally in scripture where it says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the transaction that took place on the cross. Now it's interesting in the New Testament, Peter says he bore our sins, plural, in his own body on the tree. Here it says, God has made him sin uh, for us uh, that knew no sin. There's a lot of things in this this verse. One is that he was made sin. Now, he he was never sinful. It was impossible for the Lord Jesus Christ to sin. Uh, He was tried, he was tempted, but there was nothing in him that could respond to sin. He was and is sinless, a sinless savior. Uh, It was impossible for him to sin. But he was made sin for us. Now, there's an Old Testament concept, I think, in view here. The word for sin offering and sin were the same in the Hebrew. And so when the offerer bought a sin offering to the, the tabernacle or the temple, he was bringing sin. But it was a sin offering. Remember, God said to Cain, uh, if you do well, it would be accepted. Sin lies at your door. Well, it could be a sin offering or it could be sin. What's going to win the day? What's going to, to conquer? And Cain, of course, ignored uh, the offer that God <clears throat> was making. So when a Jewish person came and put their hand on the head of that goat or lamb or bullock and confessed their sin, it wasn't just a sin offering. It was made sin uh, for them. And so the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was made sin for us. Now, we can't comprehend 
how this transaction took place and how that in three hours of darkness, the Lord Jesus Christ was, was made sin, judged for our sin. Uh, we may have more of a concept when we get to heaven. We're known as we, uh, we'll know as we are known. But here and now, nobody can figure out how that could take place, that the sins of all of humanity could be judged on him in three hours of darkness. But he was made sin for us. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. He knew no sin, but made sin, not sinful, but made sin for us. And in that transaction, his righteousness becomes our garment. And so that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. An illustration, perhaps, in Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua the high priest is clothed in filthy garments. And the Lord says, take those garments off him. And he clothes them in uh, clean garments. Garments, we might say, of salvation. The prodigal son comes home and he's given a robe. And so we are clothed in righteousness. We are made righteous before God. Positionally, we are as righteous as we'll ever be. If you died, you're in heaven. Why? Because you're righteous. You're clothed with his righteousness. Practically, we need to be righteous, of course. But positionally, you're righteous. Why? Because he became sin. Uh, for us. And so we think of the fact that he died for us. He was made sin for us. We read in here in verse 18 as well, he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thought. Reconciled to God. Now scripture never says that God needed to be reconciled. Sometimes people, I think, mistakenly uh, say that, perhaps not thinking it through or conscious of it. But God has never said to be reconciled. Uh, He doesn't need to be reconciled to us. The thought is that God has never moved. We through sin moved. And I think we understand what reconciliation is in a marriage where there's problems and difficulties and there's a separation. Something has to happen to bring them back together. But usually both parties have to move. There has to be movement uh, often in both parties. But in this case, God never moved. We moved. Humanity moved through sin, and we needed to be reconciled to God. And so God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. That was the work of God, making it possible for us to come back into a relationship with him. Uh, A synonym for reconciliation would be peace. He is our peace. He made peace through the blood of his cross. And so as a result, he's put us to a position where We are back in fellowship with God. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Colossians, uh, in fact, turn to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. He expresses uh, this, Paul expresses this uh, in this chapter. Colossians 1, wonderful verses in verse 19, Colossians 1, 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So what a wonderful thing. Through what Christ did on the cross, we are reconciled to God. And so, do you need more motivation than that? He did that work so you and I could be 
reconciled to God. But he also talks in verse 17 about the transformation that took place in our life, a new creation. We're a new creature in Christ. We have a new nature. Now, nature determines a number of things, doesn't it? Perhaps at least two things, uh, prominent things. Nature uh, um, determines association and appetite, right? Those with similar nature hang out together. And so you see wolves in packs, you see deer in herds, all that sort of thing. Why? Because their nature determines association, but it also determines appetite. And so they eat what they eat because it's their nature. Not too many rabbits kill a mouse and eat the mouse. Why? It's not their nature to do that. Uh, Not too many dogs are interested in vegetables. Why? It's not necessarily their nature uh, to do that. And so as a believer, we have a new nature. It determines association. By this you know you've passed from death to life because you love God's people, you love the brethren. But it's appetite as well. What do, I, what do I want? What motivates me? What moves me? Well, I have a new nature. And so the things associated with the person of Christ should uh, move me for sure. And so that should motivate me. So when you think of what the Lord has done for us, do we need any more motivation than that? The fact that he has reconciled us. He has given us his righteousness. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. That should be motivation enough for us to serve him. But then he talks too in here about our responsibility. He's given us privilege, but also responsibility. And he says, and uh, Don uh, emphasized this uh, when he talked about verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. I like how Don Pell said that word, compels us. Uh, And it's a constraint, as he said in the the King James. Uh, The love of Christ compels us. Is that true? Are we motivated by the love of Christ? We think of what he did for us. As I mentioned, he loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.2 says we're to walk in love as Christ is loved us and given himself for us as an offering and sacrifice for a sweet-smelling savor unto God. His love for us. Who can measure it? It's a, it's, there's an immensity to it, isn't it? Paul talks about the, the love of Christ that surpasses human knowledge. And so his love should compel us. There's a hymn in the black book, number 305, that says, What love it was that brought thee down down to the depths in which I lay, that made thee leave thy glory throne and servant's form to tread thy way, yet lower still to death did go, that I might never judgment know. Then he says in the third verse, just love that cannot be explained, it is too wonderful, too vast, the heart of God alone contained such thoughts divine in ages past. And so you think of the love of Christ, that should motivate us in our service, in our life for him. You think of what he has done for us. It's a love that we'll never get over for sure. But then he's also given us a responsibility. He talks about the ministry of reconciliation. And so not only was God in Christ reconciling the world, verse 19, 
uh, to himself, not imputing the trespasses, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We have a responsibility. He's given us this privilege. In the next verse, he calls us ambassadors. Now, if the president were to call one of you and say, I want you to be the ambassador to whatever, to Canada, uh, you'd count that as, well, maybe not Canada, but you'd, <laughs> you'd normally count that as a great privilege. Uh, you might say I'll be the ambassador in the summer in Canada, but not the winter. But uh, you'd count it as a, a great privilege. Uh, when a new you know, administration comes in, they, they give uh, privileged posts to people that have done something for the party or for them or have served in some way. And it's, it's an acknowledgement and it's a privilege. And you represent your country. And the place that you occupy, the embassy, uh, really belongs to the country from which you are sent. But there's status involved. It's a privilege. You, you represent uh, that, that country. If you disgrace, if you don't fulfill your function well, it's a black mark on where you've come from. It's a disgrace uh, to your country. I remember uh, our Canadian ambassador to Washington a number of years ago, a man by the name of Mr. Gottlieb, his wife got mad at a, uh, there was a function and his wife got mad and slapped one of the people that were serving the, the hors d'oeuvres or, or drinks and that made headline news. How could, how could that happen? It, uh, it was a disgraceful thing. He wasn't the ambassador for very long after, after that uh, because of that behavior. And so it's a tremendous privilege to be an ambassador. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, we are ambassadors for him. The world's never going to see Christ visibly until he comes back again. If they're going to see the Lord Jesus, they only see him through us. We represent him. We are his witnesses. We are his ambassadors. And so he's given to us this privilege, this ministry of reconciliation. So he says, we beseech you in Christ's stead. He's not here, but we are. Be reconciled to God. And that's a great privilege that he's given us. So that should motivate us as well, that he has blessed us in that way, called us his ambassadors. You know, we are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. But we're here as ambassadors. The Lord Jesus in John 17 said, we're in the world, but we don't belong to the world. And so I'm here as an ambassador uh, for him. I remember hearing a story. There's a man who is a traveling preacher in Canada, very sort of eccentric, but there was a cabinet minister, a, you know, a government official sitting on a ferry between Vancouver and Vancouver Island, and uh, there was no other places available, and, and this man was looking for a place to sit to drink his coffee, and uh, he, he went up to the man and said, can I sit here? And he says, well, do you know who I am? And he said, well, the other man who was very bold said, well, I'm an ambassador. And so the guy said, well, sit down, and then he shared the gospel with them. <laughs> He was an ambassador for Christ. And so that's what we are, and we have that, that privilege. But then when you look at chapter 6, it says we're workers together with him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's his work, but we're workers together. 1 Corinthians 3 expresses this thought too. Not only are we his workmanship, but we are workers together with him. The work he's called us to do is not just our work, it's his, his work. And he works together with us. The Spirit of God indwells us. And the Father is desiring us to be involved in his work. 
It's a tremendous privilege to be involved with him. And he talks about the fact that it's today. Now, when he talks about the day of salvation, he's not talking <clears throat> again about people being saved, but about saving our, our time, our life, our energy, using it for, for him and for his glory. And so there's motivation. Whenever you might think to get discouraged or Satan says you're of no value or you're tempted to give up, you can remember these things. that No, my life counts for eternity. And God knows. And one day, everything will be revealed. It'll be like an open book. And the Lord will look at my life and reward those things done for him. My motives, my character, my work, my investment in my local assembly. The Lord will look at those things. My life does does matter uh, for eternity. And when I think of all that he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best? After all, he's done for me. The fact that he died for us, he's reconciled us, he was made sin for us, took the judgment of God uh, for us. And then what he calls us to do, the fact that we are his ambassadors and we have this tremendous privilege of working together with him. And we have something the world knows nothing about. He says earlier, we know the terror of the Lord and we have this ministry given to us. and We beseech people in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God. You know, if you were walking on a golf course and you saw somebody with their back to an alligator and about to take a shot and unaware that there was danger behind them, you'd, I hope you'd warn them. I think you'd warn them. Uh, but he's given us this ministry, telling people to be reconciled to God. So tremendous blessings. And I trust that as you think through that, you'll see the Christian life is worth living, not just for time, but for eternity. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the exhortation that Paul gives and the explanation he gives as well. We think of the wonders of this passage, what Christ has done for us, but the fact that one day we'll stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our lives. And so, Father, we want to be not just hearers of your word, but doers also. So we pray, Father, that we be motivated in our service for you. We just thank you that we are workers together with you. You don't leave us alone to do it, but you work with us. And so we thank you for that. Again, we commit ourselves to you. Watch over us. Take us in safety. Make us a blessing uh, to those we come in contact with. For we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.